Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Truth to Power. It's the Truth to Power Happy Hour, recorded here on Friday after work with your friends here at Forward Radio. Deep conversations about all kinds of uh, community topics that, of interest. And uh, boy, I'm really excited about today's topic. Uh, you probably, you're not going to hear this on any other station in town. We're going to talk about bugs today. <laughs> bugs and plants. Pollinators and native plants is the topic of our conversation today because we're really excited to have a special guest in the studio with us today. I'm going to introduce him in a second. First, let me say that my name is Justin Mogg. I'm a programmer here on Forward Radio. I, I do sustainability now in Joining me in the virtual studio is the host of the Climate Report and Let's Talk, heard every day here on the station at 7 p.m. It's Hart Hagen. Welcome, Hart. Hi, Justin. How are you? It's great to be here, as always. Yeah, yeah. We got Hart nice and relaxed before the show started. He's got his beverage. He's ready for the happy hour. <laughs> yeah, what happens here stays here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, joining us also for this conversation today is a, a great friend of Forward Radio, uh, a, a director of Forward Radio's proud community partner, Sustainable Agriculture of Louisville. It's so good to have Stephen Bartlett in here with us. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Justin. Gracias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gracias a vos. Uh, and our special guest in the studio today is an entomologist. His name is Aaron Sexton. He's a U of L PhD student working in uh, the lab of Professor Sarah Emery in biology, studying pollinators and native plants. Aaron, it's so good to have you here with us. Yeah. Hey, Justin. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks a bunch for having me on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also encouraging to know that there's a whole lab of people studying these things at L. Tell us about that. Like, who's who's studying this at L? How big's the lab? What kind of things do you research? Yeah. Uh, the University of Louisville is a pretty cool biology department because it is a very broad department. Um, so, some universities have just an entomology department and some like U of L are much more broad. So uh, I think it's nice because that lends itself to a lot of collaboration. So um, for example, uh, in Dr. Emery's lab, we do a lot of plant insect or and or plant fungal, plant microbe interactions, which are really interesting. But um, other people like the Inoviac lab do more tropical entomology. And so there's a little bit of overlap there that we can have some collaborations with, which are really nice as well. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of new hires in the department that do some really cool stuff like ecosystem ecology and microbes that, um, again, really lends itself for some really cool collaborations. And so the university is working on a lot of cool new things, I'd say, especially in the world of ecology. Yeah, so it's it's more it's more like a, a studying ecosystems and how ecosystems work rather than say, I'm sure it's part of it, but te like taxonomy, studying an individual species. It's how they interact. Yeah, I think a lot of people are really focused on that today. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have taxonomists right. and they do really interesting work, but uh, my stuff is definitely much more focused on the species interactions. Um, so you know. If one species does this, how does the rest of the community respond? Or how does a shift in the ecosystem affect these different communities, right? Um, so it's a little bit more of um, pulling levers and see, seeing what happens, I guess you could say. I got you. I got you. So how did you get into this? Why study bugs? It's uh, <laughs> a good question. Um, so I've always been interested in science. Um, I think I wanted to be a marine biologist growing up, but I shifted more into the terrestrial world now. Um, and 
I think that uh, I worked at the University of Denver in undergraduate in a lab that studied crickets. And this kind of started my interest in bugs. Um, it was a really interesting system where um, it's these population of crickets in the Pacific Ocean that have lost their ability to chirp. Um, and <laughs> they, these, chickets, these crickets chirp to mate, right? And so our question was, how can they still mate if these males are no longer calling the females, right? Um, and the reason they can't mate is because a parasite would find the males and lay eggs inside of it and make them explode from the inside out. With oh, my these, God. Uh, parasitic eggs, very sci-fi movie-like, right? Um, but... <laughs> So yeah, I, I got into so this the cricket system. Quickly learns not to chirp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quickly learns, do not chirp or you are dead. Well, interestingly, they they just get the ability to chirp taken away from them right away. So the wings actually, usually they chirp by rubbing their wings together. Right. And the new males have flat wings. So even if they try to chirp, nature has silenced them saying, don't chirp or else these parasites are going to lay some eggs inside of you. So um, yeah, it is a very interesting system. Um, did a lot of cricket poop shoveling and worked my way up to do some better stuff. But yeah, that kind of started the interest in bugs. I guess. Very tiny shovel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes your fingers instead, actually. <laughs> and Hart, I know you have a deep interest in this because of your passion about uh, native plants and the role that they play in a functioning ecosystem, which all all funnels up to healthier people too, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I believe our educational system and our you know, our culture could stand to spend more time learning about nature. And, and uh, you know, for example, I, in, in school, I learned about the food chain and food webs. You know, the sun shines on the earth and, and the plants capture that energy from the sun and then herbivores eat the plants and then carnivores eat the herbivores because they have no shame. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then decomposers decompose all that when it dies. Okay, that's a nice general theory, but what I've learned in recent years is the importance of native plants. Like, you know, you have to have native plants in order for those insect, in order for those leaf-eating insects to be able to have something to eat. Uh, and, that, and without that, you don't have that energy being passed on through the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, if we knew uh, half of that as a practical matter, we would be growing a lot more trees and, and plants, uh, native ones. We would be uh, much more hesitant to cut down the trees that we have. We would have a basic knowledge of what native plants are most beneficial uh, and edible to our insects. And we would have much less of a of a of a fear of insects. I mean, I like saying, you know, question everything you've ever learned on TV because <laughs> you know, TV teaches you to be creeped out about insects. You got to run to the spray can and spray neurotoxins all over your yard and all over your neighbors, uh, and and you have to. You have, you, everybody has to breathe in a pound of carcinogens, or it's not just it's not a good year, you know. So uh, anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Are any pollinators dangerous to us, Aaron? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, I guess we heard a lot about the Asian murder hornets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I definitely don't want to get stung by them, but um, not, not something to be concerned about generally. And um, most pollinating insects are going to have a milder sting than more predatory insects like wasps because 
of you know different uses of those venom, which kind of makes sense, right? A predator is going to have some nastier venom because um, it's using it to kill instead of defense. So, but in general, no, don't don't worry about pollinators. I've been working with them for years, and I've only been stung once, and it's because I fell inside of a nest, and that's that's on me. So, um, yeah, no issue. <laughs> you sting too, if a uh, you know yeah yeah human fell on your nest. <laughs> yeah, it's understandable. Now, Stephen, you've you've done a lot of work internationally with uh, rural folks and, and peasant farmers all over the world. Uh, give us that kind of international perspective on on insects. I know there are cultures that certainly uh, maybe even farm insects to to consume them, but uh, they can also there you can have plagues of insects. Like I think there are parts of East Africa suffering from that. Uh, just in 2020, one of the many horrible things that happened in 2020, right? Uh, but give us some of that international perspective on insects. Well, you know, um, I'm always interested in is yeah how to increase the amount of food available to chickens, for example. Chickens, yeah. So we were uh, going around and looking at the termite, the big termite nest. This is on our tropical farm in the Dominican Republic. And uh, at first we'd just, you know, with a machete or a stick, knock down a big termite nest and then collect as much, you know, have the chickens just devour them kind of thing. Um, but then we realized if we took uh, gourds that grow in trees and and introduced the termites into them and then have them breed, then we could just have a regular source of insect food, kind of easy way to feed chickens. Um, that's just one one little wow. thing. There's so, you know the ants. I mean, the thing that just so astonishes me. Um, and I, you've heard the statistics that there's like a hundred times more ants by volume than there are humans. Or oh my gosh! Yeah. In the world, um, it's our farm because the neighbors use a lot of herbicides. Mm. Evidently, the ants have all migrated into our farm, and uh, so we have a lot of fighting, really nasty fighting ants on our farm. You know, and that is a problem. I mean, it, it's a problem for humans, right? You get nasty bites from the ants, but um. These ants are just, they're everywhere, and they are really, they're going to they're gonna be here long after the human race, I think. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, but insects, you know, what, what was really astonishing, I thought, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to bring some of my sweet corn down to the, to the tropics and grow some sweet corn. Well, you should see what happens with a sweet corn that you grow in the tropics. It gets about six, seven inches tall, and then the insects come and devour it. <laughs> Because it has no, <laughs> it, it's in a new neighborhood. It doesn't know the <laughs> the, uh, the the street fighting ways of the uh, of the new neighborhood. You know? So, yeah, it, I've I've given up on trying to bring like corn from one ecosystem into another one because, and that goes to a lot of a lot of other crops too. Um, a lot, very few of the things that we grow here will survive in the different ecosystems. Um, right. So you have, chickens and other things running around tearing up all the undergrowth, you know? So, um, yeah, there's a lot to consider when you're trying to grow food and find the best balance of all the different elements. Uh, Aaron, tell us about your research and, um, you know, what, what have you been discovering and what kind of uh, programs do you have going on and, and, and what do you hope to, that, you know, the, the, uh, the, community of scholars and, and the, the, the public can, will be able to get from your research when you're all done. 
Yeah, uh, good question. I so I'm researching pollinators as we've talked touched on a little bit here, um, but. Specifically, my research focuses on how urbanization affects the wild bee communities. Um, and so what we wanted, what we look at essentially is different communities of bees uh, along an urbanization gradient here in the city of Louisville. Um, and, you know, we look in these semi-natural grasslands where there's a lot of flowers and we ask things like, uh, how do the local factors affect these bee communities? So things like what's the plant community like in terms of richness and abundance and native plant species, that sort of thing. Um, but then also how do these landscape level factors affect these species? So how large are the habitat patches? How isolated are they? What's the surrounding urbanization land cover like? Uh, and we take a look at how that affects these species in terms of, you know, how many are there as well as how healthy are they? So how many eggs are they able to lay? Um, how many of them actually survive to adulthood? And, um, you know, therefore we can kind of hopefully make some inferences about how to best support these species in the urban realm, which is really important because um, urban areas are rapidly expanding globally, right? And so if we can understand how to preserve the really important species in the urban realm, then we can help prevent a lot of species loss in the coming decades and centuries. So that's the goal broadly of my research. Aaron, we have every spring, we have some plum trees that flower. And usually when we had a good crop, I mean, well, if things are all right, you know, the flowers come out pretty early in the, in the spring, a big white, beautiful flowers. I've, I've observed where there are thousands and thousands of tiny bees, you know, hovering over the flowers and and gathering the nectar, presumably from the flowers. Um, but then, but then, some years the flowering has occurred before those bees appear, or the beer, those bees have not appeared. Um, and these are tiny little um, bees that are that if you if you're not watching, looking closely, you might not even notice them. Yeah. What, yeah. Have you found anything about that kind, those kind of small bee species and their, um, what's happening to them in the city? So uh, a lot of our species are generally small. They're much smaller than a uh, bumblebee um, in general. So, yeah, we do look at those um, small bees a good bit because um, in North America alone, there's over 4,000 species of bees. And the vast majority of them are the smaller ones that you don't really think of. Um, so, yeah, we have looked at them a good bit. And I can also talk a little bit about that phenology. The timing of when things happen is really important to these pollinators. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, some the timing of when things happen are very important. Some species will change when they do certain life events based off of temperature. Um, and some will change based off of daylight. So as the days get shorter, they start doing different things. And Unfortunately, that can start to cause some phenological mismatches where um, one species comes early one year and the other species doesn't come early. And so then we have a mismatch between these two important species, just like they talked about with these bees and that plum tree, right? Um, so that is something that scientists are keeping really close track of globally in a lot of different systems. There's been a lot of really cool research coming out of um, Colorado at the Rocky Mountain Biological Station. Um, they've done a lot of research showing that there are some of these mismatches happening where plants are flowering at different times or pollinators are coming out at different times. Uh, and this is a found that this is a change we expect to see with global warming, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we knew this was coming. We didn't know to what degree. And another important thing is the species specificity that this happens with. So not everyone's going to move at the same pace, right? And that is bad news bears because if someone is sprinting ahead, but they need their partner, they're going to be um, SOL down the road, you know? Um, and so um, in our system in Louisville, uh, Louisville is not one of the biggest cities in the country, obviously, but it is one of the large, one of the most strongest urban heat islands in the country, um, which means that in the urban area, temperatures are much, much warmer um, than in the surrounding rural areas. And we found that that's actually driving earlier and earlier flowering in the city of Louisville in our research as well. So we are seeing similar um, occurrences happening here as we are talking about um, with the plum trees. So it, it is something to think about and it is um, a concern that hopefully could be addressed. So let me just make make sure I get it for for the listeners too. So what the the effect we're seeing with urban heat island effect combined with global climate change is earlier and earlier flowering, but the pollinators aren't necessarily emerging at the same pace. They're not keeping up, and so so sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. It depends. It depends. Uh, again, again, some species are going to keep track, and some won't. I um, see. So, yeah, it's not it's not a general rule like plants are moving and insects aren't or vice versa. It's very much like these plants are and these aren't. These bugs are and these aren't. You know what I mean? So that could mean to a loss of species diversity. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So, um, OK, let's see if this is right, Aaron. Since we have that, you know, we have pressure on species uh, and, you know, climate change for the time being is inevitable and there's a lot that we can't change about it locally uh, but we can plant an abundance and diversity of plant species uh, so as to give you know to, as to give these bees the maximum amount of resources that they might need right yeah absolutely you know we can offset the effects of climate change and even more so at the local level i think that's really important um so you know Louisville has this really strong urban heat island, but if we start planting more plants and growing more trees and grasses and flowers in that urban realm, we can offset that urban heat island and we can decrease the amount of temperature increase that we're seeing. And therefore we can help slow this phenological shift earlier and earlier um, so that the species can keep track of it. Because like you've probably heard before, the climate has always been changing and will change. Um, but the question is how fast it happens. And if we can slow that right. down a little bit, then the species will be able to keep up with it and hopefully survive. So we think of bees as visiting wildflowers and no doubt they're important, but what about trees? Are trees important in the life cycle of a bee? Absolutely, yeah. Some of this research is just now coming out. There's a really cool paper that came out in 2019 talking about the value of ornamental trees to pollinators in the urban realm. Um, you know, we might think of trees as, oh, that's very pretty, right? Um, in the spring, it flowers. And um, we think of it as a human value, but it actually has immense value for pollinators, right? Yeah. And so if we think about the pollinators that we want to support, we can do that through, via trees as well. Um, you know, flowering trees in the spring can provide a lot of resources. Um, here in Louisville, the redbud tree flowers pretty early. And that is going to be really important for a lot of bumblebee queens that come up really early and need resources when there's not a lot out there. So um, just here in Louisville, the redbud is a lovely example of that. That is a great resource for these pollinators. Well, and I, I think about the serviceberry, too. I, I, 
I've mm. I've got a whole line of service berries that I planted behind the office there at U of L on, on on the brick alley, and nice. it, it's one of the first things to show anything in the spring. And on those, you know, when it's still chilly out and you feel like the world's still dead, but maybe starting to emerge is like this hope. This hope comes out with the service berries, and I'm like, ah, future fruit. And and sure, uh, yeah, yeah, it's good for the pollinators too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel. Uh... That just gives me a shot of serotonin immediately, and <laughs> I like to imagine it does the same thing for the bumblebees. Um, yeah, well. yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're talking today with Aaron Sexton, an entomologist here on our Truth to Power Happy Hour. Uh, we're relaxing on Friday after work with me, Justin Mogg, and Hart Hagen, host of The Climate Report and Let's Talk. We've also got Stephen Bartlett from Sustainable Ag of Louisville on the line with us. Uh, and Aaron Sexton is a PhD student at U of L in the biology department, sharing some of his thoughts about pollinators and bugs and, and their association with native plants today on the show uh and you know when when you're talking about uh bees i want to make sure we're clear for for listeners that you don't just mean the typical like domesticated honeybee right yeah that's actually a really important point that we should make um i i specifically research wild native bees um so these are things like sweat bees, mm. carpenter bees, mason bees, leaf cutter bees. If you've ever heard any of those names, those are actually our wild species. Um, and we have, again, 4,000 species of bees in North America. Wow. And that does not include the honeybee. The wow. Technically an invasive species that we brought over from Europe when um, the Europeans colonized North America. Um, actually, the Native Americans called the uh, honeybee the white man's fly because, again, <laughs> they brought them over um, and they did not love them so much because a lot, a lot of research has been shown that um, honeybees are actually bad for our wild bee species. Um, and so if we're thinking about wild bee conservation and preservation, we really should be focusing more on our wild bee species um, and much less so on the honeybees. Um, so the honeybees you know, are important in terms of agriculture. They do provide ecosystem services, um, but they are not endangered and they are not the species that need our help the most. These species that need our help are these wild bee species, um, leafcutter bees and osmia, these other bees that are wild and native to North America. Wow, that's 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 a really good point. I want to I want to dive into that one, because I think when a lot of people think about, oh, what can I do to to help out the pollinators, because we've heard about the crisis with pollinators, I think a lot of people instantly start thinking about beekeeping. I know it's something yep. I got into, not, not not just because of that, but uh, it, right. I love beekeeping. It really, it's my connection <laughs> to nature. It's my, it's my time to be an entomologist is when I get into the beehive. Uh, but yeah. that's not, like you're saying, that's not really what we ought to be doing if we're, if we're thinking about preserving native species that are actually under threat. So what are some of those things that a homeowner or a business owner could do if we want to uh, make Louisville a better place for those wild pollinators? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do want to hit that honeybee thing again. I think honeybees are not conservation. Um, I have hobbies too. I like to do woodworking, but I don't go out to my garage and do woodwork and be like, I'm saving the planet while I'm doing <laughs> this, you know? And that's, that's how we should view beekeeping, right? It, it is not conservation. You shouldn't be donating your money to someone who is going to put more urban beehives out, right? That's not conservation. So we don't want to be thinking about it that way. 
Instead, what we should be doing is focusing on these native pollinators. And some ways you can do that is it, it's generally pretty easy. It's, it's talking about planting native plants mm. um, and using the space that you have in a way that is ecologically mindful. Um, and what I mean by that is if you have a yard, you know, maybe include a flower bed in there or a bed of native grasses and plants, not just, you know, very short Bermuda grass or anything like that. Um, so if you have the space to do that, absolutely do that. Um, additionally, things like community gardens at the more um, larger scale or governmental scale, I think are really important things to push for in your community because they do provide these habitat oases in the urban or suburban or even the rural realm that provide these native plants for a lot of pollinators that can be really, really beneficial, um, again, in areas where, you know, resources might be lacking. So I think it's it's general, it's easier than beekeeping, you know, you just plant some flowers, um, hopefully some native ones, because they are much more beneficial to these bees than uh, exotic ones are. And um, again, push for more natural areas in your community. And that can really do a lot with these native pollen. Well, and I would think an important step is what you don't do, which is to not spray agrochemicals, right? <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. Um, there's, there's tons of studies showing that pesticides are terrible for our native our native pollinators and our non-native pollinators, right? Regardless, even if you do want to save the honeybee, don't be spraying um, because they have pretty obvious negative consequences for our wild species. And so please don't spray your backyard for mosquitoes because you're also spraying it for other things. And I don't want to get in trouble uh, here saying that, but you know there are studies showing that pesticides are very bad for our pollinators. So definitely avoid that at all costs, yeah. And I know, too, that you can find, like, in garden centers and stuff, these these native bee uh, hives uh, that that have, like, small voids and things where, where bees can find a home. Uh, are those legit, or is that just, you know, a way to sell something? They are legit. Um, so you, you need to know what you're looking for. Um, the butterfly homes are not legit. Um, they are actually what I call spider homes. They don't house <laughs> butterflies, they house spiders. So if you want, if you want spiders in the backyard, that's fine. Um, <laughs> Nothing but, wrong with that. Yeah, I, I love them. Um, but no, I actually, from my research, when we look at things like, you know, how many eggs these bees are laying or how, how much of them are surviving, we do build these nests from scratch. And they look, I mean, they don't look similar. They look much less pretty than the ones you get at the garden shop. But yes, they are functionally the same thing. What you want, essentially, is um, these cavities or these caves where these bees can live in. Um, and the female bee these solitary bees is actually the majority of our native species. So this huh. is something I should have touched on earlier. Um, when we think of the honeybee, right, we think of like this colony of all these bees living together, right, and this queen just pumping out eggs, right? Um, but in North America, the vast majority of our native species are actually solitary bees. Huh. Um, so what I like to call them are my strong independent ladies because the, <laughs> the female will lay the eggs and provide and do everything by herself. Um, the male kind of mates and then goes off and dies, and the female will lay the egg, collect pollen and nectar, and bring it back to that little cavity, that crack nest that we talked about. And she will build basically this resource packet for that egg. So we have an egg and this ball of pollen and nectar, and then she'll close it off with either mud or leaves or something, and she'll start the whole process over again. Um, so if essentially you have like this hole that's drilled into the wood and she, she might lay anywhere from three to 12 eggs inside of that wood 
and then close it off with some mud or some leaves again, and then go do the same thing somewhere else. Um, so yeah, if you are um, wanting to invite some bees into your backyard, you can put up some of these nests. And it, I think it's a really fun way to just watch the bees in your backyard. Um, so it's, it's a great way. I love sitting outside in the summertime and just watching the, the bee. She goes to the nest, goes to the flowers and comes back every couple of minutes with a bunch of pollen. And then, you know, she rubs it off and uh, lays that egg and then keeps going. And it's a really, I mean, I love doing it, sitting outside with a nice drink and relaxing, <laughs> watching the bee work. So if we don't provide the home for them, what would they naturally build it in? Would it be a live tree or do, is, is this an, another reason why we should leave some snags in the forest, right? Deadwood or, or where would they normally build? Yeah, that's a great question um, and something that people are, you know, somewhat still working on. A lot of bees will, yes, nest in like natural cracks or crevices in live or dead trees or wood scraps in the forests. Mm. Um, a lot of other species are um, digger bees, so they nest in the ground. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it will, look, it will look very similar to like an anthill. Um, so they, oh, they yeah. will kind of nest in the ground and we'll have like a little hill there and Again, same design where she's doing most of the stuff herself and um, building that nest by herself. So uh, if you do have a backyard, again, another nice thing to do for that is to kind of like leave a refuse pile is what they call it. So like a pile where you don't really manage it and it just looks like there's some leaves hanging around, maybe a little bit of disturbed soil. Um, and the bees love that. They will put up a bunch of homes in that little pocket there. And you're, again, providing homes for those really important homes. So, again, a very easy and lazy way to do it. Um, so, again, like you can leave this refuse pile. You can mow your lawn less and yeah. that'll make more flowers. And so that's a lazy way to just help these bees out and, you know, lay out and not do much. So it, it, there are easy ways to support these species. That's, that's interesting because right now uh, some of us of the Urban Agriculture Coalition, we're looking at the land use code of the city, and we're also looking at the uh, the code around mowing, uh, the mowing mandate that mm. that uh, you can't have, <clears throat> you know, uh, grass taller than ten inches on your lawn uh, near near another other's property within fifty feet of someone else's property, that kind of stuff, or noxious weeds um, which are not defined and that kind of stuff. So we're looking at trying to to change the language, how to change the language of those ordinances and remove some of the, I mean, they, they require you to mow, for example, little tree saplings that might be growing near a neighbor mm. that are naturally born from seeds or coming from a tree, you know. So a lot of those practices that are, you know, based on having lawns only, right, right pristine monoculture lawns, um, still, still are very strong in in the way that people regulate and then any neighbor that can complain and then you have to pay a fine and blah 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 so if you, if you haven't mowed your your lawn for a while um but it's so interesting that actually like i like to think of creating a meadow rather than a lawn right a meadow that has of, of things on it do you have any any ideas in that in that respect um, I say let's burn those ordinances down. God, they are terrible. Preach. Just, yeah, Preach. Awful. Um, it, Talk it, to it me. Is, it's, it's literally against the ecological science that says, you know, mow your lawn less, add more weeds and flowers into the yard, you know, let stuff regenerate by itself. These are all things that make complete sense, are much better for the environment, but 
because the HOA said so, we shouldn't do that. Um, and that drives me insane because really we want more stable ecosystems that can sustain things like drought and storms and uh, prevention methods are specifically based on these ecologically sound practices, right? If we have these meadow-like communities with more flowers, tall grass, a few trees mixed in there if you want, these communities are much more stable and they are more resilient in the face of change. So therefore, you're going to have a healthier ecosystem for decades to come if you do these smart ecological practices that for some reason we have outlawed in a lot of American cities, which is just backwards. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and I like how you point out that it, it's actually less work for us. You use the word, yeah. you use the word lazy, but hey, let's say it, it frees us up to, to do other pursuits, uh, you know, whether it's more work or creative endeavors or more time for a walk in nature, right? Go ahead, Hart. It, yeah. If I may editorialize here, you know, nature, <laughs> want, nature wants to, which is what I do, uh, <laughs> nature is, uh, wants to be on a weight gain plan. So the sun shines from the sky oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and, 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 and uh, shines on all these plants. And we want to you know, cut down the plants, cut down the grass, cut down the trees, use uh, insecticides to kill the insects. So we, we're killing off biomass. You know, the nature wants to gain biomass over the course of time, and we can't do anything but eliminate biomass. And one result of that is that we're in a mass extinction now. Aaron, if you could tell about the mass extinction from the standpoint of, uh, of an insect scientist, but it's my understanding that we're losing species in something like 100 or more times yeah. the natural rate. And we've lost maybe three-fourths of the insects in the last 50 years, something along those lines? Yeah, uh, it's, it's really unfortunate. And um, there's been a lot. This is actually a really hot topic right now. So I can't say for certain, you know, um, a percentage of how many insects we've lost. But I know that um, insects are among the most threatened group and those that are declining at the fastest. Um, so they are very sensitive to these environmental shifts that we're seeing or these management shifts that we've talked about, right? And so, um, you know, there's been different studies to say they are declining at different rates. So we can't, you know, it's so hard because they are so diverse, you know. Right. Um, insects are the most diverse group of animals on planet. Um, you know, there are insane amount of beetles out there, mm -hmm. pollinators, all sorts of things that um, it's just hard to keep track of who's there and if they're actually declining, right? We, we don't have great records to say what their population numbers were 100 years ago, right? And so that makes it tricky to, de to determine if they actually are declining or not. But what we do know is that it's very simple. We can understand if we're, if we are creating a good environment for these insects or if we are kind of deteriorating their environment. We can draw very clear lines from that and infer if we are doing good or bad things for these insects. And um, yeah, I guess I guess that's what I can say to that point. And explain a little more uh, for folks who don't have a broad ecological understanding why this is a problem for us. Why should we care about extinction of insect species? Yeah. One base one that I think doesn't get touched on enough is that 
you know, we are part of this planet too, right? We are animals. We, <laughs> yeah. we shouldn't be the ones destroying the party, right? <laughs> Aside from I want my fruit, you should also just think about the fact that you are part of this planet and it is up to you to do right by it. Now, secondly, um, all, not all, but a vast majority of our food products rely on insects, whether it be pollinators, seed dispersers, what have you. Um, and so if we lose our pollinating species, I'm sure people have already heard this, we lose something like 70% of all of our food product, right? Um, so they are vitally important. And I will say, you know, maybe we don't lose all of our food, but it becomes too expensive for you or me to have. Um, there's this terrible story of um, an area in China where they had an orchard a crop where they were growing pear trees, I think it was. Um, and all of the pollinators in the area were lost due to pesticide exposure, literally all of them. Wow. So then the humans had to hand pollinate all of these trees. Um, and you can imagine what that does, the cost of these fruit, right? So if we, if we are hand pollinating or maybe drone pollinating these crops, um, it's just going to be too expensive for any of us to eat. So if we lose these pollinators, we lose our access to um, reliable food sources, I'd say. And it's it's off the topic of pollination, but can I just put in a little plug for detritivores? So uh, <laughs> just imagine a world without any bugs that process our waste, right? So these are the critters. Uh, you know, Stephen mentioned earlier ants. Like ants play a huge role in this. Worms, a lot of microbes and fungi as well. But um, these small little soil organisms that we don't think about who are doing the constant work of the nutrient cycling. They're breaking down the leaves and the the organic waste that are on the surface and drawing them down into the soil, making them available to make new plants, right? So there's a there's a really Absolutely. unsung heroes of, of our world, right? Imagine how totally much waste agree. we'd be standing in without them. <laughs> so this brings to mind the question of whether detritivores should have rights. Yes. You know, should, should pollinators have rights? Yes. It's, it, it's mm. like, you know, we, we invented corporations and gave them rights. So we can skip <laughs> the inventing part. Pollinators were here long before we were. Uh, detritivores were here long before we were. But skip the inventing part and just give them rights. In fact, the Endangered Species Act gives rights to species. It's a little bit, it, it's not quite strong enough or mm. broad enough. And it's like, oh, we're going to focus on this one species instead of trying to, you know, focus on habitat, which would give habitat, which would give, would give a place to live. But anyway, um, <clears throat> what, what are the, uh, do we believe, do we believe that a species should have rights or would that just clog up the courts, you know? That is a lovely question that I don't know if I have the ability to answer. <laughs> We're going to have to bring um, in some from the law school. I will say that detritivores are definitely the unsung hero. Um, the soil microbes do really mm. important things. And, you know, even if we're not having pollinators, we need these soil microbes to make soil habitable for a lot of our crops and grow them to, you know, healthy standards. And so, yeah, these detritivores, whether it be soil microbes or other insects you know they're all important and so yeah i think uh a lot of times insects are the unsung hero of a lot of systems and you could even say detritivores are the unsung heroes of the unsung heroes right? so. <laughs> we're singing their song today <laughs> yeah, right 
Yeah, they're going to be singing. Well, we need to sing the song of the ones that don't have a song to sing for themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, that completely distracted me from the question I had. But you made reference, uh, Aaron, to living soils. Um, you know, so, you know, it seems to me like somewhere around about 1950, when a lot of things started to go wrong, we also just determined that growing crops is a completely mechanical process. All you need is potassium, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And what else could you possibly need? And uh, but but how important is it for us to look at soil biology and and, and all that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's this really great documentary that hits at this very well. Um, soil Carbon Cowboys. It's Ooh. a really quick, like 15 minute one. Um, definitely go check it out. But um, they talk about how yeah, in the 50s we thought you know just add fertilizer and it's going to grow twice the height. And so you add fertilizer and you add fertilizer, blah, 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 and it's going great. And then you don't realize that you are killing the soil microbes that do so much of the grunt work of plant productivity that without them, you are at a complete loss. And again, if we're just adding these fertilizers, yes, maybe in the next two years, we grow more plants. But just like how I talked about with the lawn maintenance, the community is now less stable less resilient. And so we don't have these microbes that can help the plants weather the storm of drought or severe storms and things like that. And so we are at catastrophic losses at this time when we were, um, you know, when we just had a much more natural system, these species are able to weather the storm, you could say. So, yeah, I think that, um, again, those microbes can be kicked out when you go purely, definitely should not be. Well, we're talking today about pollinators, bugs, uh, detritivores, and native plants <laughs> here on uh, Truth to Power Happy Hour with me, Justin Mogg, Hart Hagen's on the line, as well as Stephen Bartlett from Sustainable Ag of Louisville. And we are picking the brain of an entomologist today, Aaron Sexton. He is a PhD student in UofL's biology department, uh, studying under Dr. Sarah Emery about pollinators and native plants. And if you want to check out that film, Soil Carbon Cowboys, you can find it at carboncowboys.org, and we'll put the link to that nice. in the show notes as well. So don't miss it. Uh, that sounds really great. I'm going to put that on my uh, Netflix and chill list, but you don't even need Netflix. It's free. <laughs> so, uh, I definitely do. I love it. I want to ask you, too, a little bit more about some other uh, unsung pollinators, right? Because uh, we, we tend to think of bees, and of course, that's the bulk. But I think about something like our native pawpaw trees, and they actually rely on a certain kind of fly. I don't know the name or any of the details, but I know that it's a fly species. And then I also know that in other parts of the country, maybe here in Kentucky, too, there's, there's things like bats that do vital pollination. So can you talk about some of those other pollinators? Yeah, there are an abundance of other pollinators out there. So like you talked about flies, um, there's a lot of species of flies that are really important pollinators. One specific group of these are called hover flies. Um, and you might, you might think of them as bees. They do typically land on you. They have that bee coloration, but they are technically flies and they are just as important as bees. You know, they are these very important pollinators that we need to think about as well. Um, and again, yes, bats, extremely important pollinators. They tend to pollinate, you know, larger flowers. Right. Again, bats are much larger, right? So um, if you have these big flowers in your garden, maybe one night check out to see if you got some bat pollinators coming wow. in. Um, but also uh, 
butterflies and moths. Um, yeah. You know, I think they get a lot of attention, maybe not as much from me, but, you know, they, they get a lot of conservation focus as they should. They are very important species. And um, I do want to give a shout out to Kentucky here because um, all states have a state insect. And I'd say the vast majority of state insects are the European honeybee, which <laughs> that's, you know, whatever. But Kentucky, our it's state American insect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Our state insect is actually the monarch butterfly mimic, um, which makes us very niche and no unique. Way. I think it's very cool. Um, Viceroy butterfly, um, very cool butterfly that is actually the monarch mimic. And so, I think in some areas we do show um, an aptitude to care for these other species that maybe aren't as charismatic, like moths and flies and things like that. I have a question, Aaron, about the uh, attempt to rid rid our uh, ecosystems of of mosquitoes, um, and and how people are thinking of introducing mosquitoes that won't reproduce. And what are what are the what's your view of mosquitoes and what dangers are there to this kind of bioengineering where they're trying to think of how to dramatically reduce the, the number of mosquitoes in a given ecosystem? Because don't yeah, mosquitoes, um, they like a basic food source for so many other? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's definitely a sticky one because I will start by saying mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal on planet Earth. They have killed more humans than any other animal. So there is real reason to think about what can be done about them. Wiping them off the face of the earth is not the solution. Um, you know, the mosquito is not the disease. The disease is the issue that they spread. They are vectors of disease. So I think we need to think more about that and less about how to wipe them off. Because like you said, they are food sources for so many insects. You know, they do provide food for a lot of our bird species, which everyone seems to care about, right? And they are also in unique circumstances can be pollinators as well. They are flies oh. technically, so they can be pollinators wow. in very unique circumstances. So that is something, you know, we never would say wipe all the pollinators off, right? So don't wipe the mosquitoes off. And then in closing, one of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park, uh, the quote, life finds a way, yeah. you know, maybe we kill all the mosquitoes, but life finds a way that niche will be filled. A blood sucking flying insect is a very wealthy niche, right? The mosquitoes are doing quite well. Someone is going to slip into that niche and just take that role. And the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't know. <laughs> maybe something can be worse and invade that niche and then we're screwed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So don't mess with nature, I guess I would say. But, you know, there is work that should be done. But there is some, isn't there some bioengineering that isn't about killing the mosquitoes, but about somehow disrupting the way that they spread disease? And I'm getting on really thin ice, but I feel like I've heard a report about that. Does anyone know? Yeah, so Stefan mentioned it really quick. They are bioengineering males that cannot reproduce. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the females don't know that. So they mate and they uh, are infertile. So essentially what you're doing is crashing the population in that area. Um, so, yeah, that is a unique idea. And I think it is really intuitive. That is a good way to control mosquito populations. This is much more difficult, but a better system would be to genetically engineer a mosquito that cannot transmit disease right. to humans, because then we maintain those wild populations but we don't, um, you know, transmit the bad part of the disease that they can carry. 
And let's cross the T and dot the I on it for listeners who aren't familiar with dengue fever and all these other <laughs> things that right. those of us who've lived in the tropics have had to deal with. What are these diseases that are such a, you know, you call the mosquito the biggest killer and killing animal. What Lay those out for us. Um, yeah, dengue fever, malaria is definitely up there as well. Malaria is a very dangerous one um, as well. So I'm not I'm, I'm not a big mosquito guy. My friend Yellow actually fever. researches this, but I, maybe someone else could jump in on that. Yellow fever. Yeah. Yellow fever. Yeah. Yellow fever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, I've been led to believe that biodiversity is the cure for much of what ails us. Uh, and can can biological diversity like within a, a space, within an acre or a square mile, uh, can biodiversity is serve as a form of pest control? Yes, absolutely. And that's a great question. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is in agricultural settings, actually. Um, a lot of systems have shown that if you just add in strips of natural habitat with a bunch of native and wild diverse plant species, your yield dramatically increases. Even though you're taking away cropland, you know, maybe you have a cornfield or an apple orchard, you take away land dedicated to those crops, you can grow more by increasing diversity. Because then what we have is an increase in things like pollinators and predatory insects. And those are so vitally important in agriculture. We already talked about pollinators, but you know, if you think about an agricultural system, if I'm an herbivorous insect, this is a gold mine. I want to hop in on that and eat all that I can. And if we provide these avenues of natural habitat, then things like wasp species and parasitic flies or spiders or other things can live in those wild patches and then feast on those herbivores in there. And so we can, and this is again, a natural way that we can hopefully, um, you know, provide ecosystem services without dumping chemicals or other things like that. So yeah, that's a great, great point that um, biodiversity can solve a, a good portion of our problems. Another kind of angle on that, and Stephen and I were talking about this at one point, about the, in relation to COVID, like COVID is arguably a, uh, a product of industrial agriculture. But conversely, if you have biological diversity, you have a lot of different species within a given area, then pathogens get confused. So pathogens like to jump from individual to individual within a given species. So if you have a bunch of pigs in a pig farm, you better load them full of antibiotics because that is. <laughs> pathogens want to jump from from individual to individual so is that confusion of pathogens is that just quackery or am I, is there is there something to that no that, that's very real um I, I i'm not a pathogen expert so i can't floss poetically a lot of these viruses are born out of environments where a group of species are closely put together shoved together and bodily fluids are being mixed around like for example in wet markets um so um, that is a perfect example of where viruses can move around readily because there is this unnaturally high density of species that wouldn't normally co-occur and so there are real importance to diversity but you know, we're not going to have a lemur and a camel and a human naturally co-occurring together. And that's where you can get kind of <laughs> sticky. And again, it's where we're seeing humans just putting their hand in the pot a little bit too much and causing issues. 
Yeah, it takes humans to put a lemur and a camel and a human (laughs) together. It takes some real genius to do that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Or Pixar Studios. I think they like to do that a lot. Yeah, they love that. (laughs) Hey, I want to talk about the role of orchards because you talked about Mm. community gardens, for instance, could be a really valuable thing for us to think about in terms of supporting pollinators and insects in general here in Louisville. But I think orchards often go, you know, forgotten about. They can be a really important part of a community garden. And I think the problem with orchards is it's too communist. Like we, we here in America, we want, this is my plot of vegetables. Don't touch it. Like, but in an orchard, in a community garden, it's just a free for all. I'm like, how much can I take? We're all like on pins and needles about it, but they are so valuable, not just as a food source for us, but for pollinators too. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a wild native bee species called the orchard bee, and they are great pollinators for those sort of systems. And yes, you pointed out exactly, there are, there's so many good resources that these orchards can provide that I think we often overlook, like you said. And I think that Louisville actually has started, I think, around five urban orchards. Is that right? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I do know about that. And in fact, we're going to have some pruning of our communal orchards coming up starting uh, just this weekend, actually, Saturday, December 5th. I'll be participating in some pruning at a, uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. It's open to anybody. Um, and, and that is at Produce Park, which is near 30th and Muhammad Ali. And then on Tuesday, the 8th, we'll be uh, out at the 7th Street Community Garden at 2 to 4 p.m. And Sunday, the 13th, we'll be back at Produce Park at 30th and Muhammad Ali from 2 to 4. And these are pitched to folks as uh, winter orchard pruning workshops. So you don't have to know anything. You can come and learn how to prune and maintain fruit trees of all kinds. And there's a whole series of these that go through February. And so uh, you can learn more about it. You can sign up to volunteer, too, at tinyurl.com slash orchards2020. And that's a part of the Urban Agriculture Coalition, a proud Forward Radio community partner. So check out that work. But yeah, when I say the word orchard, it can be a street tree, right? (laughs) Anything that produces fruit planted (laughs) anywhere in the city can be of value. But I think Hart wanted to jump in with something. I was going to ask if like wild bees can sometimes be more efficient than honeybees. I've kind of heard that if they can at times like produce more fruit because they're, they can be better pollinators. Is that some merit to that? Yeah, there are certain crops that much more so rely on these wild native bees than honeybees. Um, and again, if you just think about it, it's because a lot of our Orchard crops are native to North America, and they need a native pollinator, which again are these wild, solitary bee species. Um, And if you bring in a different bee from Europe or other continents, then, you know, the lock and key mechanism maybe doesn't work out as well. So, or they have different ways of pollinating that aren't just right, aren't just perfect for um, these native species. So again, if we can provide these native species, they do much better for our uh, ecosystem output production. Well, we're nearing the end of our time, uh, but in our last five minutes, um, I guess, is there anything else that you were really hoping, Aaron, to share about your research or about insects that we just haven't touched on today? You know, nothing in particular. I would say, uh, again, it's really important that people think about uh, 
if they can, what resources they can provide for our wild colonies because they do need our help. And, um, you know, again, like we said, it doesn't have to be super difficult, but thinking about things like community gardens or um, converting your lawn into a more wildflower habitat, um, these are great things that can help the bees out, you know. Um, and hitting that point even harder, if you can, native plants are even better, mm. you know. If we can provide um, native flowers for our wild bees, then they will do even better. So our research has shown that in areas where there are more native plants or more proportion of native plants, the bees will actually lay more eggs per nest. So this is just showing that they are so much more healthier when they have their native partners around. And so if you can provide that, that is a fantastic way to help save the bees in an actually functional manner um, and I think it's a really engaging manner as well. You know, you can get to know your backyard pollinators in a really fun and enjoyable way. And where, where can people find native plants and seeds to plant? Um, I, I, I say go to your local garden shop. Definitely. Um, I used to work at a garden shop, so we were very anti, um, you know, the big garden shops. I don't want to say any names, but um, yeah, your local gardener shop, the people that work there are going to be extremely knowledgeable and they'll know exactly what plants are native or non-native and what might work in your backyard. So local garden shops are definitely the way to go. They know everything about these systems. So um, definitely hit them up. And there's a Louisville bug zoo down on Logan Street, too, isn't there? Yeah, actually, Idlewild Insectarium. Um, I teach a lot of courses there. So things like entomology or um, intro to backyard pollinators or how to build a bee nest. Um, so I teach classes like that there, but there's a lot of other things that they have there. They have a wealth of, um, you know, insects there that you can handle and hang out with if you want to, if you're into that. Um, and they hold a lot of other courses as well. So definitely check them out. They do some really cool stuff. They're just across the street from Logan Street Market. So if you're down there, go ahead and check them out. They do super cool stuff. Mm -hmm. This has been really inspiring, Aaron. I'm not sure if we're exactly out of time, but you know, you, you're here to pump us up. I can tell. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can make real change. So you know, why not do right. it? Right. Well, what do we need to do for uh, like? Yeah. What, what do we need to do for habitat? That's the big question. But you know, what 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 needs to change? What would you tell Louisville Metro Council? Mm. Um, or you know. So what would you tell Louisville Metro Council yeah. if they were inclined yeah, to first, listen to you? Mm -hmm. yeah. First, let's burn those ordinances down. You know, we don't <laughs> need to mow our lawn every week. That is terrible. Secondly, we need to add in more natural habitat patches in the urban realm, whether it be community gardens or parks or prairies yeah. or grasslands, whatever. There needs to be more natural habitat in the urban realm. And that is not only for pollinators that like we've been talking about, but this is also beneficial for the human communities, yeah. right? These parks can offset urban heat islands, which are bad for humans. They can reduce pollution. They can increase activity. They can increase value in the area. They are so beneficial to all these communities. And Louisville has a dark past of neglecting its West End. And this is one way that we can start to revert that course and, you know, include them in a kind of more developmental mind of including them with more natural habitat patches to not only benefit the pollinators, but also the neighborhood. 
That's a fantastic note to end on. We are all out of time here on the Truth to Power Happy <laughs> Hour. I want to thank you, Aaron Sexton, so much, PhD student at UofL, for joining us to talk about bugs today, as well as Stephen Bartland from Sustainable Ag of Louisville and Hart Hagen from the Climate Report, and heard here every day at 7 p.m. And I'm Justin Mogg from Sustainability Now. Thanks for tuning in to the Happy Hour, everybody, and we'll be back in your ears again in one week's time. Thanks, friends. Thanks, guys. Bye -bye Thank you.